us pray. Our Father, we have gathered here this morning to hear your word. Some of us may be unaware that that is the purpose for which we have gathered, but we believe in your providence and we believe that everyone who is here is here for that purpose, that the word of God may be brought to bear upon their life. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would take these words and infuse them with a mega freight of divine power that implanted within our hearts, they would cause the dead to live, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. That they would take cold hearts and make them warm. And that we would be transformed. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Father, I pray that you would be pleased through the preaching of the word this morning. To make it so that none of us here are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear religious, moral, beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. Would you take today's words and would you use them to make us men and women and children after your own heart? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the third chapter of Jonah ends on such a soaring high note that many of us probably wish that the book had just ended right there. With the greatest mass conversion in human history, an awakening of epic proportions. The city of Nineveh, famous Throughout the ancient world for its massive size and its unparalleled cruelty and violence has been turned upside down in a a single day before the ferocious grace of God. The prophet wanders into the city, utters one message, and the power of the Holy Spirit takes the words of the living God and, and just shatters the strongholds of sin and lays waste to their rebel hearts. It's an incredible picture. One man, one message, one day, and God conquers an entire pagan city by His grace. And this, Jonah 3, followed on the heels of Jonah 1 and 2, which were incredible in and of themselves, in which God pursued and overtook and conquered the heart of His rebellious prophet by means of a great storm and a great fish and great grace. In fact, if the book of Jonah had ended after chapter 2, I would have been very, very happy. If it had ended after chapter 3, I would have been thrilled. It would have been an amazing story of the triumph of God's sovereign grace. 
Between Jonah, the disobedient prophet, and the ship full of pagan sailors headed for Tarshish and the city of Nineveh, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, by the end of Jonah 3, there's no one left to save. God's grace has conquered every character in this story. Jonah 3.10, put the period on the end, God wins, right? The story does not end at Jonah 3.10 with the high note of Nineveh's repentance. Instead, there is a fourth chapter that begins with these words. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Well, there's a head scratcher. Jonah has just witnessed the greatest mass conversion in the history of mankind, and he is, quote, greatly displeased. More than that, it was through his own prophetic ministry that this great awakening occurred. It was from his own lips that words proceeded that the Lord used to raise 120,000 people from death to life to turn them from wickedness and sin to repentance. And Jonah is, quote, greatly displeased. He's angry. Angry enough to die, he reminds the Lord a couple of times. And as I read through Jonah 4, I think to myself, I would give anything to preach with that kind of unction. To experience the Spirit of God taking my words and making them into sharp arrows that pierce through the armor of man's rebellion and strike to the very heart. I would give anything to see that happen. Angry. If I were Jonah, I would would fall on my knees and I would weep for joy. Or would I? I think that's the question that might be raised out of Jonah chapter 4. Would you? Until now, the story of Jonah has been, has been very tidy. It's been very neat and clean. Nice, sharp edges. Just the way we like it in church on a fine August morning. Jonah rebels against God. God disciplines Jonah. Jonah repents. Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. Jonah preaches. Nineveh repents. Our instinct is to cut the story off at the end of of chapter 3 and slap a happily ever after ending on it. An instinct which is shown to be true by the way that many children's Bibles treat the story. That's where they end it. But more often than not, that's not the way it works out in human experience. It's not the way it's worked out in my experience. In fact, in the lives of actual believers, Jonah's experience is more fitting than the way that I would have written the story. Richard Phillips comments in in this way. He says, Jonah's story reminds us that few believers follow an, an unbroken ascent from unbelief upward into gloriously victorious faith. Instead, we tend to progress with steps and halts, advances and slips. Jonah shows us that when it comes to growing in God's grace, none of us is set for life. We all have need of continual and perpetual growth in the grace of God. 
See, what we find in the fourth chapter of Jonah is the prophet dealing with the very same sins that provoked him to turn away from the command of the Lord and to flee from his presence in the first place. He doesn't like Ninevites. He hates Ninevites. He feels a sense of racial superiority to Ninevites. He feels a sense of religious superiority and self-righteousness. He says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't like Nineveh. I don't want you to save Nineveh. And I know that if I go to Nineveh, that's exactly what you're going to do. That's what was stirring in his heart in Jonah 1, and that's what's stirring in his heart in Jonah 4. And and you have similar things stirring in your hearts, and so do I. We are wrestling with indwelling sin, and that's why we need Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4 is a marvelous picture of the continual battle and progression that is sanctification. So even though it messes with my type A personality... That likes the papers on my desk, you know, parallel to the edges and perpendicular to the corners. My desire for nice, clean endings. I, I, I am actually glad that there is a fourth chapter to the story of Jonah for the same reason that I'm grateful that there's a seventh chapter of the book of Romans. Remember where Paul is saying that the good that I want to I do, that I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing, and nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I find great encouragement in Romans 7 and Jonah 4 because it, it displays two men of God, Jonah the prophet and Paul the apostle. It shows two men of God to be men who were great sinners who struggled and battled against indwelling sin and the desires of their flesh, even after their conversion. Indeed, the Bible tells us that the struggle against sin doesn't even begin. It doesn't even start until the Spirit comes to reside within us and starts putting to death sin. Before regeneration, before we're awakened from spiritual death to spiritual life, there is no struggle against sin. Rather, we are held captive to do its bidding. We are enslaved in the prison of sin. We gladly give in to the desires of our sinful nature. The struggle begins at conversion. It does not end. So I'm encouraged as I read Jonah 4, and I hope you will be too, in my own struggle against sin, knowing that even the prophets and the apostles who have gone before me fought the same battle and emerged on the other side of the field victorious by the sovereign grace of God. And God's sovereign grace will triumph in your heart and in your life as well. You say, I don't know what you're dealing with. I probably do, but, but let's just say that I don't. We have a steadfast promise that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what we see happening in Jonah chapter 4. I titled this message, Sanctification and Sovereign Grace. Because the theme of Jonah 4 is God's gracious dealings with the hard heart of Jonah. In Jonah 1 through 3, we saw God's sovereign grace at work in bringing Jonah to repentance and bringing the pagan sailors in the city of Nineveh to conversion. In Jonah 4, we're going to see God's grace continuing to be at work as he goes to deal with the heart of Jonah in order to sanctify him. In this chapter, we find a God who is not content merely with getting Jonah where he wanted him to go. 
Rather, we find God dealing with his prophet in such a way that that he is determined to see Jonah thinking as God thinks and loving as God loves. We have a God who does not merely want converts. He wants men and women and children after his own heart who are being conformed into the image of his beloved son. So we have... We have a couple of encouragements that we can take from Jonah chapter 4 before we even get started. Number one, you don't have to walk in here today and pretend as if you have it all together. You don't have to be a faker. It's okay not to have it all together. You're in good company. But you also have the encouragement of knowing that God is determined. He has set His will And decreed that you will be conformed into the image of his beloved son come hell or high water. He's going to see to it that it happens. And we're going to see how in this chapter. We have a God who is after our holiness. And will triumph over our sinful hearts. But what do I mean by holy? Perhaps it would be good to lay a foundation there. Just camp out a little bit on a definition of holiness. More to the point, I think we might ask, what does God mean by holy? What what, what does He want from us? Because I'm afraid that many today suffer from the same misunderstanding that afflicted Jonah and that afflicted the Pharisees after him. I'm afraid that when we hear the word holy, and sanctification is merely the process of becoming holy, when we hear the word holy, our minds automatically and instinctively go to externals. Okay, So we begin to say, you know, a holy person is someone who doesn't drink, who doesn't smoke, who doesn't sleep around, who goes to church, who gives to missions, who has a fish on their car, who votes Republican. You know the drill. For instance, I, I've noticed something in, in, my, in my brief time in the ministry, I've noticed that when people find out that I'm a pastor, they feel this irresistible urge to confess to me that they smoke. Can I let you in on a little secret? I could not possibly care less if you smoke. And I suspect that God is not tremendously concerned about it either. Now, get me, don't get me wrong, you shouldn't smoke. But why? Because smoking is a God-demeaning, soul-destroying sin? No, because it is stupid to do something that you know will kill you in the end. God wants you to be a good steward of your body, the one that He has given you. But when we're talking about the gospel, I don't care one little bit about cigarettes. I don't care about your lungs. I care about your heart, and so does God. I'm not for smoking. I just don't see a direct correlation between quitting smoking and becoming holy. If I say the word holy, and your mind automatically and instinctively goes to the word cigarettes, then we're not even in the same ballpark. You see, the problem with equating holiness with those external things that I just mentioned, is that a a person can do all of those external things and not love Jesus. Just look at the Pharisees. 
their fastidious law-keeping and their exacting morality and their precise knowledge of the Scriptures and their loud religious activity. Yet Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs that on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was not primarily concerned about their external morality. He was not impressed with it. Or look at Jonah, the prophet of God, right? The servant of the Lord, the messenger of the Almighty. God tells him to go to Nineveh and he rejects the command of the Lord and flees from his presence, not out of fear of taking the message to the Ninevites, but out of hatred for the enemies of Israel. You've got to ask yourself a question. How much do you have to hate someone to rather, to rather burn in hell yourself than to see them go to heaven? Dead men's bones. So let's be careful about the way that we define holiness. Let's be careful about the way that we define it for ourselves and the way that we define it for other people. If your definition of holiness looks like taking some white paint and slapping it on the outside of a tomb, then then we've got some work to do. If your definition of holiness is quitting smoking, then we've got some work to do. Work that I hope will get a good start this morning. So how do we define holiness? Well, we can answer that question in a number of ways from a number of different passages. For our purposes this morning, I just want to point out two. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me so that we can have them in front of us and look at them together. Two verses in the New Testament. The first one is in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. If you want to find the second one, and it's in Romans 8 and verse 29. Acts 13, 22. Paul's on his first missionary journey. And he's preaching a sermon in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And in this this sermon, Paul is rehearsing the history of Israel and showing that all of the promises given to the fathers are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And and he gets around to David and he makes this remark in Acts 13.22. He says, after he, that is God, had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king. Concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That is God's description of David. But have you read First and Second Samuel? Have you, have you read the story of David? David was a man who struggled with some serious sin. Have you read the Psalms? In the the midst of these struggles with serious, serious sin, we find the words of a man whose heart is just bursting with the pursuit of God. Oh God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you remove your presence from me, I will die, he says. And that's 
That's just Psalm 63. Your loving kindness is better to me than life. Unabashed desire for and delight in God, believing that God's loving kindness is better than the air that I breathe, seems to be what God means when he says, a man after my own heart. Not moral perfection. I I want God to look at me with all of my failures and stumblings and, and messes and say, have you considered my servant, Tim? He's a man after my own heart. He's holy. Or we could turn to Romans 8.29. Paul's going through that great golden chain of salvation, the unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future. And he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son whom God loves. So God's purpose in election and redemption and regeneration, the the great end, the great purpose, the great goal of our salvation is to restore in us the image of Christ. To make us look like Jesus who himself is the image of the invisible God, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So what is holiness? According to Paul in Romans 8, 29, holiness is the work of God's sovereign grace to conform our hearts into the heart of Christ, which is itself the heart of the Father. See, holiness is becoming a man or a woman or a child after God's own heart. It's not ceasing smoking or anything else that we tend to substitute with it. Holiness is not first about external things. It's not about slapping white paint on the outside of a gravestone. Now, don't misunderstand me. Some of you are tempted to misunderstand me. I can feel it. Those who are being conformed into the image of His Son, men and women and children after God's own heart, will have visible, demonstrable, external transformation evident in their hearts and their lives. You hear me? It's just not where it begins. You will not become holy by focusing on externals. You become holy by focusing on the heart, and the heart works itself out in external transformation. Holiness begins in the heart, where by God's grace, we begin to think as God thinks and love as God loves. Therefore, if we want to know what holiness is, we we need to know what God is like. Because holiness is nothing more and nothing less than being restored into the image of God. In Jonah 4, we find just such a description of the Lord, one that we, we need. We can, we can latch a hold of and we say, you know, God, what is God like? God is like this. 
And it actually comes from the lips of a man who at the moment is not really pleased with how God is like. But it greatly displeased Jonah, verse 1, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Do you know Jonah's quoting there? He's quoting from one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, Exodus 34 and verse 6. See, Moses had requested to see the glory of God. He said, God, I want to know what you're like. I want to know you. Show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my glory, at least a passing glimpse of it. I will protect you as I hide you in the cleft of the rock. And the Lord descended in a cloud. And he spoke to Moses as Moses called upon the name of the Lord. And he said this. The Lord. The Lord God. This is God's own self-revelation of what he's like. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins, who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Say, what does that mean? I don't know. He's incomprehensible. But I know this. He's also gracious and compassionate and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And one who delights to forgive iniquity and transgressions and sins. But one who is so holy that there is not one transgression in the entire universe that will not be brought before the throne of his judgment. Jonah liked the second part of that self-revelation. You know, the judgment and the visiting of the iniquity and all that. He was a fan of judgment. What he did not like at the moment was the first part about God being gracious and compassionate and loving mercy. And being patient towards sinners and delighting to forgive. He didn't like that stuff as long as those attributes were directed outside of Israel upon the Assyrians. See, Jonah's national pride and his sense of ethnic superiority and his self-righteousness were at odds with God's holy character. And Jonah needed to be sanctified and God was determined to do it. By his sovereign grace, through a plant, through a worm, through a scorching wind, and through a final word from the Lord. Can we stop here as we have a number of times throughout the book of Jonah and say, thank God that it doesn't end at the end of Jonah chapter 3, if that's still resident within Jonah's heart? God did not stop pursuing him with the whale. And God does not stop pursuing you. He will pursue you into the very gates of heaven, transforming you all the way by his grace. So we've defined holiness in this way. Holiness is becoming a man or woman after God's own heart. It's having our hearts and our minds conformed into the image of the 
heart and mind of Christ until we think like Jesus thinks and we love like Jesus loves. And there are two words in Jonah 4-2 that headline his description, God's description of himself that Jonah quotes, gracious and compassionate. We're going to focus in the time that remains this morning on those two words. Okay, here's here's the flow of where we're going. God is gracious and he is compassionate and holiness is becoming like God. Therefore, if we're to be holy, we're to be people who love grace and who love compassion. That's holiness. God is determined to make us a people who love grace. That is his. That is his determined purpose in our hearts and in our lives, and he will see to it that that purpose is accomplished. See, after Nineveh had repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God had relented from the judgment he had threatened, Jonah grew very, very angry. And we'll pick up at verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah, why are you angry? I'm angry because you won't punish, you won't visit the iniquity of the Ninevites upon their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's why I'm upset. I knew this would happen. I knew you would relent concerning the destruction. So, So you're angry with me. Because I'm gracious towards sinners. Let me just get that straight. That's what you're saying to me, Jonah. You're angry because I'm gracious to sinners. You're you're angry at me because I would rather show mercy than judgment. Jonah, have you forgotten about the ship and the storm and the wind and the waves and the deep and the fish? Have, have you forgotten what you said to me from the belly of the fish? How you, you fell on your knees in thanksgiving and declared salvation belongs to the Lord? Yes, but they don't deserve your grace. They're so wicked. They're so violent. They're the enemies of your people Israel. Jonah. Deserve? Deserves got nothing to do with it. Did I treat you as your sins deserved? So why are you angry? How can you be angry? How can you begrudge me showing the Ninevites the same grace that I poured out on you? There's some problems in Jonah's heart. His anger reveals something disturbing, something that the Lord is determined to heal. It is self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is the enemy of grace. You cannot be holy. You cannot share God's heart if self-righteousness still has you in its shackles. Jesus told a parable in Luke Chapter 18, intended to show how radically different the self-righteous heart is from the humble heart, from the heart of God. And he also told this parable to some people, listen, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray. 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers and unjust and adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I make. Jesus said, but there was a tax collector some distance away who was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. The sinner. And Jesus turns and he looks the Pharisees in the eyes and he says, I tell you the truth, this man went home justified. Rather than the other. Because he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. No person can delight in God's grace when they are operating under the pretension of serving or deserving, rather, God's favor. It is only when we approach God as the tax collector did, in humility and repentance and confession, casting ourselves upon the mercy of God as our one and only hope that we begin to even draw near to the heart of God. Which man was justified in the end, the Pharisee or the tax collector? The tax collector. Which brother in the parable of the prodigal son is enjoying the father's fellowship at the father's table? Is it the younger one or the older? It's the younger. The younger son is the only one that knows the father's embrace. These parables are meant to teach us something, and they're meant to teach us that holiness is not about external morality or religious activity. Holiness is not slaving away in the Father's vineyard. All the while despising the Father's grace. Holiness is not slaving away in Jesus' church all the while despising Jesus' cross. If it were, then the Pharisee would be commended and the older brother would be saved. The heart of God is not about merit, it's about mercy. And it's not about wages, it's about grace. So holiness is becoming a man or a woman after God's own heart. Thinking as he thinks and loving as he loves. And God loves grace. And God is determined that we would be holy. Therefore, he will use any means necessary, be they tender or severe, to get us to throw off the shackles of legalism and to escape the system of merit into which we were born. And to come as a little child and receive of his Mercy and delight in the freedom of His grace. The more we recognize our helplessness and our hopelessness and our undeservedness, then the more tightly we will cling to Christ and the greater will be our rejoicing in His grace. And that is what He wants because that's what holiness is. Rejoicing with the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. Rejoicing with the Father over prodigals who return home. Rejoicing with God over a violent and wicked city who repents. Rejoicing in the same amazing grace that saved wretches like us. 
Well, closely related to grace is the idea of compassion. God is determined to make us a people who love compassion. As it says, He is gracious and compassionate. And He is determined that we would be a gracious and compassionate people. Here's how grace and compassion are related. Grace is what we receive from from God. And it is out of the overflow of that grace that we pour out compassion on other people. Compassion is outward looking grace. The object lesson in the second half of Jonah 4 is intended to reveal the error of Jonah's inverted priorities. So in verse 5, Jonah leaves Nineveh and he heads east a bit and he he sets up a shelter for himself and he sits down in order to wait and see what's going to happen to the city. And I I chuckle a little bit because what is he hoping will happen? Well, I think it's very clear. Jonah is still holding out hope against hope. That God will rain down judgment on Nineveh, like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. But God doesn't. Instead, what Jonah turns around to find that God has appointed a plant to grow up supernaturally, quickly, and to spread a broad shade over his head and to shield him from the Middle Eastern sun. And notice the end of verse 6. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. It makes Jonah greatly happy that God would spare him some temporal discomfort. And it makes Jonah greatly displeased that God would spare sinners from hell. Well, the lesson is not over. God then appoints a worm to eat the plant. And it withers and dies overnight. Then God appointed a scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah's unprotected body until he became dehydrated and faint and begged for death. And I can't help but see in this some of the same images that Jesus uses to paint of hell and to wonder if maybe God is allowing Jonah to feel a bit of the judgment that he's been spared from. Jonah wanted judgment for Nineveh, and he despised God's grace. And it's as if God sends him through these circumstances just so he would know the full reality of what he's asking. Be careful asking for judgment for other people. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. There's some some evidence of such psalms. Just saying do it with great caution. Because it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it would be best if we didn't wish that on anyone. I wonder if God does not take Jonah to the very brink of death a second time. He's already been there. As if to say, Jonah, you don't know what you're asking. My judgment is dreadful. My wrath is fierce. How could you wish that upon another person? When you deserve the very same thing. At any rate, God then brings the object lesson home. Then God said, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, angry even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant, 
for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? So Jonah's compassion extends as far as a plant that was here yesterday and gone today. God's compassion extends to people with immortal souls who can offer him nothing. That's how far apart the heart of Jonah was from the heart of God. And do you hear the compassion in the voice of God in verse 11? The men of Nineveh, they don't don't even know their right hand from their left, spiritually speaking. They worship lifeless idols instead of the one true And living God, they destroy themselves with sin rather than coming to Him for life. And His heart is just throbbing with compassion. A compassion that is compelling Him to send word to the Ninevites through a prophet in Israel that repentance would bring forth a relenting of the calamity that He had declared. The same heart of compassion that is found in Jesus who stands and overlooks the multitude and sees them as sheep without a shepherd. As he goes throughout the cities of of, of Israel and of Galilee and he's seeing men who are dispirited and afflicted and they're they're possessed by demons and they're dying and, and they're just miserable. And it says of Jesus that he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's how God viewed Nineveh. That's how Jesus viewed us. That's how holy people view one another. Holiness is not first and foremost about religious activity or moral purity. Those are derivatives of holiness. Those are the fruits of sanctification and saving faith. But holiness at its core is becoming like God. Who loves grace and loves compassion. Becoming like God who overflows in mercy and is abundant and overflowing in loving kindness for sinners who looks upon sinners with compassion. They don't know their right hand from their left. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Holiness is is being filled with that kind of compassion that sees burdens and seeks to bear them and sees needs and seeks to meet them and sees grief and seeks to comfort them. It is outward looking grace. And our prayer at the end of Jonah 4 ought to be that God would give us that kind of heart. A heart that delights in grace and that throbs with compassion. In other words, we ought to pray that God would give us a heart like Christ. And then, it just ends. Left wondering, did did Jonah receive God's rebuke? Did, Did he learn from the object lesson? Well, we don't know for sure, but I think there's reason to believe that he did. For instance, where did the record of these events come from? Much of the book takes place privately between God and Jonah. 
How would we know what had happened had not Jonah recounted what had happened himself? See, I tend to believe that the entire book of Jonah is Jonah's own confession of sin and his own praise for the glory of God's grace. And I think that speaks volumes about the lessons that he learned and the power of the sanctifying grace at work in his life. Because Jonah is a book that magnifies the sin of man and glorifies the grace of God. And that in and of itself is evidence of Jonah's sanctification and proof that God's sovereign grace was triumphant in his life as it will be triumphant in the life of all of his people because we are confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. The book of Jonah is the book of the triumph of God's sovereign grace over the rebellion and sin of man. It's about a grace that pursues rebels and overcomes them in power and rescues them in love. It's about a grace that patiently and yet powerfully sanctifies his redeemed until they, like him, delight in mercy and rejoice in grace and overflow with compassion. It's about a grace that extends beyond the borders of Israel and far outside the walls of the church to reach the unreachable and to save the unsavable. It's about a grace that finds its triumph ultimately in one who is greater than Jonah, that is Jesus Christ, who likewise was cast into the waves of God's wrath for sinners and descended into the grave of judgment in our place and rose again from the dead on the third day, who is now being proclaimed among the nations, who is willing and able and delights to save all who will repent and call on His name. And the question of Jonah is, will we be among them? Who take the sign of Jonah and believe on the name of Christ. And so I leave you with this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and call and then rejoice in the sovereign grace that has triumphed over your rebel heart. And has brought you home to the Savior who has made it all come to pass. This is sovereign grace, and it is glorious. Let's pray. Lord, it has been my joy today to declare your grace to your people. And my prayer is that this sanctuary this morning would be filled with people who are pursuing your heart. Would you rescue us from the delusion that Christianity is fundamentally about what we do and cleaning ourselves up and looking right and remind us that Christianity is fundamentally about being rescued by a sovereign Savior and being transformed into his very own image, becoming a man or a woman after his own heart who delight and rejoice in grace and who throb and love compassion. Would you do that for us? Sanctify your people. And for those in our midst who are exposed by your power for the very first time today to the one greater than Jonah who is able to forgive every sin, 
who sees them as sheep without a shepherd and, and is calling them, come to your great shepherd, calling them by name. Would you open their ears to hear that they would repent and that they would call upon you and that they would follow you in faith and obedience and baptism? I wonder if there's anyone here who hears the call of God come out from them and be holy, says the Lord. That is, come out from them and come to me. And learn from me. Would you come today? All it takes is to respond to the call of God with repentance and faith. And to call upon him and to ask him to save. And he will save. You do that. All of these things are to the praise of the glory of your grace. And we gladly give it. And all of the people said, Amen. Let's